fear, and faith. How are these two things related? What would you say? What, when you think of fear, what is it? What is fear? What is faith? And what do they have to do with one another? If I was to sort of paint a really big question, a big idea for us this morning, that's, that's basically it. That's what I want to consider together. And I want you to think as we go, is how, how would you answer it now? And would you change your answer by the end? Hopefully we can all answer that question when we're done. That's the goal. And so, um, I'll introduce the sermon with uh, an example, an illustration from the Pilgrim's Progress. That's a common thing to do. I, I really didn't plan on doing that. But there's a reference in this book that was just too good to pass up. There's an illustration, I think, so relevant to our text this morning that I needed to mention it to you. Uh, If anyone's not aware, the book is an allegory of the Christian life, and it follows Christian, a man who goes on a pilgrimage from the city of destruction toward the celestial city. And at one point along the way, he comes upon a place called the Palace Beautiful, a resting place for weary pilgrims on their journey. And as Christian approaches the lodge, he enters a rather narrow passage where he sees two lions in the road ahead. He had met two men earlier who had really turned back. They were going the other way, mistrust and timorous, and they had told him generally, don't go on, the road ahead is fraught with danger. Well, now he had an idea what they were talking about. He was afraid. He thought, perhaps, maybe I should turn back with them, because clearly nothing lays ahead of me but death. Well, the porter at the lodge saw Christian. He saw that he nearly made to turn back, and he called out to him. You remember what he said? He told him that the lions were, in fact, chained. He said, so long as you keep to the middle of the way, they can't harm you. And so on Christian went, trembling for the fear of the lions. But taking good heed of the directions of the porter, he heard them roar, but they did him no harm. This episode in Christian's life shows us a very powerful interplay between fear and faith. I want to come back to it, but when you think about what's happening there between fear and faith and what moved him from fear to faith. And so on to our text. Uh, I would guess many of you are familiar with the Old Testament story of the horses and the chariots of fire on the mountain. Probably, if we took a poll, yeah, I've heard that story. And then maybe some fewer of you perhaps would know where to find it in 2 Kings 6. And I'm not sure, though, how many of you might know a whole lot else about it. It's not one of the more common Stories in the Bible, commonly told events. Who was involved? What happened? Why did it happen? What does it matter? 
Do you know that it's actually a very powerful story about fear and faith? Well, before we look into it, let me try to get us caught up to speed in case there's anyone unfamiliar about what's going on. One of the, one of the major storylines of the Old Testament is the rise and fall of the kingdom of Israel. After God delivers the 12 tribes of Israel from Egyptian bondage, he brings them to the promised land. He promises them a kingdom, and he promises, or really establishes as a kingdom, and then he promises to David, the king of Israel, that there would always be a descendant upon the throne. Well, unfortunately, because of the sins of David's son and successor Solomon, the kingdom is eventually divided, torn in two under the reign of his successor, Rehoboam. And this division is recorded for us in 1 Kings 12. The kingdom is divided into two, but not evenly. There are ten northern tribes. That makes the north, Israel, is what they're called, and then the two southern tribes, Judah. And what follows from that moment of division in 1 Kings 12 through the end of 2 Kings 25 is a story about these two nations, Israel and Judah, and their continual rebellion against God, their decline into utter spiritual poverty, and their destruction and exile. The northern tribes are finally exiled by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom is exiled by the Babylonians in 586. But this was not without warning. All through the life of the people of these kingdoms, from the beginning until the end, God sent prophets to warn them of the coming judgment. Over and over, God warned Israel and Judah that judgment was coming if they didn't turn back to Him, if they didn't repent of their sins. Sometimes, through a leader, through the king, uh, they would relent of their rebellion for a while, but then they would really just get right back to it. In 1 Kings 17, we're introduced to one of these prophets, a man named Elijah. He prophesied mostly during the reign of King Ahab uh, of Israel. And uh, he's probably most famous for his uh, duel with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You can, it's really a fascinating exchange. If you're not familiar with it, you can read that in 1 Kings uh, 18. And, and so after King Ahab dies, Ahaziah reigns in his place, and his reign is short-lived, and then Jehoram reigns in his place. And then it's... L- Probably during, during his reign that Elijah's ministry transitions to Elisha. So you've got Elijah and then his successor is Elisha. Really difficult to uh, not confuse the two of them. Well, that's at the very end, really the beginning of 2 Kings. And so from 2 Kings 2 through 5, we see this transition. Elijah is taken up to heaven in the chariots of fire. Elisha begins his ministry, his prophetic interactions with uh, Moab, the Syrians, and Israel. He performs some miracles. Um, one at the very beginning of chapter 6 where uh, a, uh, an axeman loses the axe and, uh, in the water and he causes it to float up quite miraculously. And so that, more or less, catches us up to speed. Elisha is um, ministering to Israel, likely during the reign of King Jehoram, when we get to chapter 6, verses 8 through 23, which is our passage for consideration this morning. Our sermon title is Fire on the Mountain. 
not a reference to the country song. Um, for anyone thinking we were going in that direction, my apologies. Um, our key words for our worshipers in training are faith, eyes, and blind. So I want to read this passage and then we'll consider some things together from it. Verse 8, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, that is Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not, pa- you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And in the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me of who? Who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of, the, of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, he went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. They went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids in the land of Israel. So what we see here is not surprising. At least it shouldn't be. Israel is at war. Sometime during the 9th century B.C., they are fighting with the Syrians. Nothing new. And yet there are some peculiar events that take place during this warfare. Throughout the course of the fight, the king of Syria, we just read, would make battle plans with his servants. He would plan to attack Israel, lie in wait for them, ambush them, 
And yet, through some apparent revelation of God, Elisha would come to know the details of these plans. He would tell the king of Israel, and the king would use this information to move his army around and so avoid this deadly attack. And after this happens quite a few times, the king of Syria was quite upset, obviously. And he he begins to accuse his own servants of betraying him, betraying the crown, passing information along to the Israelites. Well, they denied it and told him, "Uh, it's Elisha, the prophet. Now, how they knew that, I don't know. It's a mystery. But somehow they did. The king of Syria then would plan that, okay, I'll go get Elisha. We'll seize him. Be done with him. Unfortunately for the Syrians, they don't realize that there's an even greater army than their own who would be fighting on Elisha's behalf. They're struck with blindness, and Elisha leads them safely away from himself and from the place where he's staying. And he leads them to Samaria, which if the importance of that doesn't land on you, uh, I'll tell you, it's, it was the capital city of the northern kingdom at the time. So he marches the Syrian army right into uh, the right behind enemy lines, right? They're, they're dead. They got them dead to rights. And the king of Israel is like, that's amazing. Thank you. We can gun him down now, right? He instructs the king instead to prepare a feast for them and send them on their way, which he does. So what is it then that this story that we've read and summarized, what, what do we learn from it? And what does it have to do with fear and faith? Well, there are uh, four things I'd like us to consider this morning to help us answer those questions. Uh, a few of them will, will be rather quick. Um, the third point will be a little bit longer, but um, we'll look first in verses 8 to 12, and we'll see that God protects His people. Uh, secondly, we'll look in verses 13 to 14 and see that God's enemies foolishly array themselves against God's people, who are under His protection. Third, in verses 15 and 19, we will see the climax of this story. We'll see that fear blinds us while faith opens our eyes. And fourth, verses 20 to 23, we'll see that mercy triumphs over judgment. So let's look at each of these in turn. First, in verses 8 to 12, God protects His people. On their own, Israel really wouldn't have had much of a chance winning the fight against Syria, especially not in these ambush situations. And yet, through the providence of God, The king of Israel was able to stay even just one step ahead of the king of Syria and even get the better of him. Syria would go right, Israel would go left. Syria went up, Israel went down. Around and around they went. Syria simply could not catch Israel. They kind of probably looked like just a dog chasing his tail. God was leading and guiding the Israelites for his purposes. The truth is, when God is for you, when He wants to save you, there is nothing that anyone can do to harm you. Likewise, when God wants to stop you, there is nothing you can do to accomplish even a single goal. God is not without means 
for providing for his people. Isn't it amazing the exchange that takes place here? Elisha was able to tell the king of Israel the very words that the king of of Syria spoke in his bedroom. How apropos are the words of Psalm 39.4. There the psalmist says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Think for a moment. God knows every word you speak. Even in the privacy of your own home. More than that, He knows every word you are going to speak before you even think to say it. A statement like that should evoke at least two different emotions in this room this morning. You should either rejoice with joy inexpressible or tremble with fear unbearable. For the believer, this is an immense word of comfort. God knows you, Christian. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows every thought in your head, and yet He still loves you. He sent His Son to die for you so that you might be free to live with Him forever. But for the unbeliever here this morning, those living in rebellion against God, a statement like this should really strike immense fear in your heart. God knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And at this moment, you are living in rebellion against Him. And so I pray that a holy fear would seize you that you might flee to Christ and be saved because while you yet live, the offer stands. Would you come to Christ? But we must acknowledge that it's it's unlikely that those are the only two emotions that might be felt in this room now, or certainly if we begin to poll broader audiences, there's neither rejoicing nor trembling. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning with an apathy that consumes you. You couldn't care less that God knows you. My friend, if that's you, I urge you, don't, don't take another step in that direction. Wake up to reality. You've forsaken the path of righteousness. You live in contempt of the one who knows every word you're ever going to speak. God is going to judge each and every one of us here this morning. And we will either be found having faith in Jesus Christ, and so united to Him and possessing His righteousness imputed to us, or we will be found outside of Christ with nothing to shield us from the blast of the wrath of God Almighty. And so, if you are here steeped in apathy, I pray for you that you would look to Christ and live. Well, second, in verses 11, um, sorry, 13 and 14, uh, we see the utter futility of those who live in unbelief. 
Despite the sovereignty and providence of God clearly set against him, the king of Syria, upon discovering the source of his problem, that he can't quite catch up with the Israelites, he, he decides he's, he's going to get Elisha. The funny thing about that is that it, his plan was really doomed to fail from the beginning. What exactly was he thinking? What kind of plan was he going to come up with that he could sneak up on the guy who already knew what his every move was going to be? Somehow he's going to get the best of Elisha, he thinks. Kind of reminds me of uh, Elmer Fudd, right? Trying to sneak up on Bugs Bunny. You, you can, can you imagine the king of Syria meeting with his servants, telling them the plan? Okay, guys, when you get to Dothan, you need to be very, very quiet. <laughs> but Elmer never catches bugs. Wiley e. Coyote never catches the roadrunner. Yet, they persist. And at some point, their perseverance moves into idiocracy. And here we find the king of Syria, setting up yet another booby trap. This time it's not for the Israelite army, but it's for Elisha himself. Well, as we've read, it it doesn't go well for the king. The Syrians are about to make gigantic fools of themselves. And so we see in verses 13 and 14 here the utter folly of unbelief. Well, that leads us then into our third point, the, the blinding nature of fear, the revealing nature of faith, verses 15 to 19. And this is really the climax of the story. Fear and faith here are brought into stark contrast with one another. Consider this moment. One morning, after yet another perhaps joyful, jovial night of maybe laughing at the Syrians, running around in circles. Elisha's servant rises early in the morning, heads outside to get the morning paper, as it were. And what does he see? Not this, you know, some perhaps beautiful Judean countryside, but a great army of Syrians surrounding the city. And immediately, he loses all hope. Well, Elisha, the jig is up. They caught us. What do we do now? Should we turn ourselves in? Beg for mercy? Maybe maybe we go back into our tents and dig a hole to China. He's terrified. Petrified. But not Elisha. Elisha exhorts him, don't be afraid. Now, I don't know what you would be thinking, but I'm thinking this, this is a decent moment to be afraid. It seems excusable given the circumstances. Why does Elisha dismiss it so quickly? Why isn't he planning his escape route with his servant? It's because he knows something the Syrians don't. He knows something that you and I on our own don't. 
He says those who are fighting for Him, for His servant, are more than those fighting against them. And then He prays. What might our lives be like if in the moment of trial, our first thought isn't, what do I do? But it would be to pray. He prays that his servant's eyes may be open. And how does God respond? He opens the young man's eyes and he saw and behold a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, this servant's fear had blinded him to reality. Ed Welch writes helpfully on this point. He says, fears see only in part. They see that we might lose something dear to us, such as our money, our health, or the health of someone we love. They see the potential for loss with microscopic acuity, but they don't see God's presence. They don't see His faithfulness to His promises. They don't fixate on unseen realities, but are dominated by by what is merely seen with the naked eye. Do you know what is the most frequent, frequently given command in the Bible. You know what that is? Don't be afraid. Don't fear. I've wondered, I've often wondered why that is. I think it's because fear is the exact opposite of faith. Faith is trust. Fear is distrust. Faith is certainty. Fear is uncertainty. Elisha's faith here stands in stark contrast to his servant's fear. What about you? Are you filled with fear or faith? Do you fixate on what you can see? Or do you allow the eyes of your heart to look with faith to what is unseen? This is what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. He says, We do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is a really important point for us to get. Are you typically a fearful and anxious person? If so, you're you're looking too narrowly at your life. You've zoomed in here. You've zoomed in to the here and now at the expense of the there and after. Um, Paul Tripp, uh, either in things I've seen him say, like uh, lectures or sermons he's, he's given or books he's written, he, he makes this comment a lot that we need to be aware of reducing our lives to the size of our lives. You see, that's what Elisha's servant had done. He, his life was, was no bigger, was nothing more than his own at this point. The enemy was surrounding and it was lights out. But Elisha saw the big picture. That's the kind of faith we want to have. Let's pray for that faith. 
Let's pray for the faith that says, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be thrown into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we will not fear. Why? Why are the sons of Korah able to sing that in Psalm 46? It's because of what they say to be true about God. What do they say in verse 1? God is a refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Believer, do you believe that? Is God for you a refuge and strength? Is He? Have you made Him your very present help in trouble? Have you learned to cast yourself upon the Lord? Let's face it. We are weak and needy creatures. Life is hard. Life beats us down. And sometimes it seems like it is just never going to let up. Some of you, I know, have had a very hard 2018. Some of you have had quite a difficult 21st century. For some of you, the 20th century wasn't that great either. So how do you make it through each day? What do you do when trouble comes looking for you? Do you respond with the fear of the servant? With the faith of Elisha? There's an episode in the Gospels that I'm reminded of here. Jesus is in the boat with His disciples who are professional fishermen. That's important. They spent their lives on the sea, dealing with storms. And yet, a particular storm arises at this occasion that tempts them to fear for their lives. It suddenly whips up and nearly capsizes the boat, and the disciples are working tirelessly to keep the boat afloat. Jesus, their Lord and Savior, the King of the universe, sleeps soundly in the stern. And what do they say? Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Jesus wakes, rebukes the storm, and it immediately quiets down. He then turns and rebukes them for having such little faith. What's their problem? They, like Elisha's servant, could only see with their eyes. They only saw a giant storm about to fall upon them and tear them to pieces and leave them for dead. They couldn't see who was in the boat with them. And so if you are suffering, struggling right now, in life, can you see who's in the boat with you? Can you see that he who fights for you is greater than he who fights against you? Are you looking with faith to Jesus Christ who disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by the power of His cross? I pray that you can. Let's turn back to our passage quickly um, to finish this and we'll briefly, briefly look at our fourth point. But before we do that, Elisha's servant isn't really the only one who's blind here, is he? Blindness is uh, more pervasive in this story than just the servant. 
In verse 17, we, his eyes are opened to the spiritual reality at hand, but the Syrians remain blind as bats. Are bats actually blind? I don't know. I've heard maybe they're not actually blind, but you get the point. They're blind. They can't see the army in front of them protecting, the, protecting Elisha from their attack. But Elisha prays essentially that their physical condition would match their spiritual And so God strikes them with blindness and He leads them on a way. He leads them into Samaria. As I mentioned earlier, the capital city of Israel. And imagine this situation. The king of Syria commands his army to hunt down that rabbit, Elisha. But not only are they not able to capture him, but then they're led blindfolded by him into their enemy's capital city. Imagine the horror that they would feel when the lights came on and they find themselves standing in the middle of Israel's capital. They wandered in like sheep to be slaughtered. And this is exactly what the king has in mind. But Elisha, he helps us to see one final point for our consideration this morning. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That sentence, of course, I'm taking from James 2.13. James writes, Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The king asked Elijah if he can strike down the Syrian army that had been served up to him on a silver platter. But Elisha asked him a question. For rhetorical purposes, he says, Would you strike down those whom you, haven't taken, whom you uh, have taken captive with your sword and bow? Well, Apparently, the implied answer is, of course not. Would you then do worse to those who you haven't even tracked down for yourself? Feed them and send them on their way. In verse 23, we see the result of this, is, this exchange is that the Syrians no longer came on raids into the land of Israel. And what we see there is that even God's enemies experience kindnesses from His hand. We have a wonderful picture of the Gospel here. It's not, the, it's not just the Jewish prophet and his servant who are spared, but it's the unwashed pagan Gentiles who receive mercy from God's hand. This would have been, should have been, wonderful news for the Syrians if they had, I had, if they had, had eyes to see. What about us? Do you have eyes to see? The mercy God has lavished upon you, Gentile? Well, let's wrap up. I want to come back to Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress for a moment as we close. Christian narrowly escapes the clutches of the lions. But what does the porter say is the purpose of the lions? He says, fear not the lions, for they are chained, and place therefore trial of faith where it is, and for discovery of those who have none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come to you. How much would Christian have liked to have seen the chains? Fear nearly caused him to forsake the way and turn back from what, in his mind, certainly would have been doom, but he would have turned back to what definitely would have been doom in the city of destruction. 
But faith, trust in what the porter had told him, helped him, enabled him to proceed toward the celestial city. This was Elisha's servant. He could see the lions surrounding the city, but little did he know they were chained up. This account in 2 Kings 6 isn't just for the sake of Elisha's servant. It's not just something happening in the 9th century B.C. and nothing more, but it happens and is recorded for the sake of all of God's people. How would a believing Israelite have read that passage while in exile in Babylon? How should we read it today? Paul says in Romans 15, 4, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Redeemer Baptist Church, hope in God. And very lastly here, as a second thing of point of application, I guess, I want to ask the question, what about when God doesn't show us the chains? What about when we're not told that the lions are chained up? And all there is, is a hungry lion. What about when He doesn't show us? He doesn't give chariots of fire standing guard between us and the enemy. Because if we're honest, certainly in terms of what we can see, that's the space where we live most of our lives. And that's the whole issue of faith. Faith hopes for what we can't see with the naked eye. What do we do when all really seems lost? What do we do when darkness has become our only companion? What does faith look like when we've truly come to the end of the rope and there aren't any fiery horses to dread down the enemy and it is time for us to breathe our last? To that, let's consider what the the author to the Hebrews says about faith. In Hebrews 11, we're, we're... told of the faith of many of the Old Testament saints, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, to name a few. And he comes to verse 32 and he says, What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Hallelujah! But wait, he goes on. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth." And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. 
we see in Jesus the ultimate demonstration of living by faith under the unseen protection of God. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 26, 53 to Peter? They're in the garden. Jesus is about to be arrested, unjustly tried and executed. Peter has drawn his sword to fight off the mob. Jesus, the greater Elisha, tells him, put your sword away. Do you not think that I... Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Isaiah 37 tells us that in one night, the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 Assyrians. In a single night, What, at Jesus' request, might 72,000 mighty spirits have done? They were ready for Jesus to call upon them. Call me, Lord. I am ready to come and fight for you, they said. And yet, they couldn't move an inch because it was the will of God that Jesus would go to the cross. Unlike Elisha, the cavalry didn't ride in to save the day for Jesus. Jesus endured the cross so that He might establish eternal peace between God and man. So even when God doesn't show you the fire on the mountain, when you can't see the horses and the chariots, you can't see the chains, and there are no chains, You don't have to be afraid. Rather, through faith, you can endure whatever may come, knowing that Christ suffered on your behalf, and even though you may lose everything in this world, you will awake and your eyes will behold the King in all His glory, the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And He will welcome you into His kingdom forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are weak and needy, tempted to blindness, to self-trust. Lord, we pray that like Elisha, we may look with faith to the God who saves. Would you be for us a place of refuge and safety? Would you glorify yourself in our lives? Would you take this word and implant it deep within our hearts that much fruit might be born in years to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.